Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. How you doing, Brother Knox? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Brother James? I mean, <laughs> Brother Jones. <laughs> all good, man. All good. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a week. It's been a week. Derek, are you sure you don't want to tell that joke? Yeah, okay, I'll tell my joke. Sweet. Knock, knock. Who's there? Britney Spears. Britney Spears who? Knock, knock. Who's there? Britney Spears. Britney Spears who? Oops, I did it again. Dang it, man. <laughs> I walked right into it. I was like, where is this going? I walked right into it. Anyway, it's been quite a week in Boston. Um, we had the opportunity, unique opportunity in New England to hear some of the apostles speak, you know, here in New England. And, mm. you know, there was quite a buzz about it. They spoke at the DCU Center. I'm not exactly sure what that stands for, but it was out in Worcester, about 45 minutes west of where of where we live and they spoke to us we got to attend a mm-hmm. single adult devotional uh, or not a single adult but a young adult, young adult devotional single or married single or married on saturday night and then there was a devotional for the whole of the new england area on sunday right and now, we both went to both of them we both went to both of them so you know we're happy to tell you about either one of them if you guys want to like just get at us on social media we're happy to tell you what our individual impressions you know, outside of what we'll discuss today are, but I didn't know it was such a big deal until I saw, you know, the actual news report on the, on the event. Mm-hmm. And of course on what was said at the Sunday devotional. So Derek, if we could, I would love to get your thoughts on the Sunday devotional. Well, I, I liked it. I liked it. I was there with maybe 10,000 other people. I'm not sure exactly how many, but there were, it was in the thousands yeah. And we heard from... 12,000 is the official oh, okay, approximate good, count. Good, Um We heard mostly from Elder Christofferson and President Ballard, but we also heard from Sister Christofferson. We heard from Elder and Sister Bennett, who are the area authorities uh, somewhere here. <laughs> in somewhere the, here. Northeast area. Yes, that. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I, I think... I think that they uh, there was some deg- degree of missionary mindness in in what Elder and Sister Christofferson said, and I really love missionary work. Like I mm-hmm. wouldn't be here without someone else's missionary work. So there's there's no way I could could not support a, a much more rigorous and enthusiastic missionary program. And uh, Elder. Uh, President Ballard really had a good talk because he grafted in a lot of like local things. He talked about mm-hmm. the foundation of America. Yeah. He talked about um, the pilgrims uh, coming over on the Mayflower. Mm-hmm. And his one of his ancestors was on the Mayflower, and he, and it's just grafting it into like stuff that happens locally happened locally is I think was really profound and strategic message definitely for New England because so much of um church culture revolves around the intermountain west like what yeah. those uh weirdos do out in the desert <laughs> <laughs> the weirdos in the desert <laughs> the weirdos uh, in the desert I mm-hmm. think there's something about you know the Middle East Texas and Utah are the all Middle East yeah Okay. They all have, um, they're all hot places with weirdo religious people. Mm. But the Middle East and Texas have oil, so take that, Utah. 
<laughs> well, anyway. So why does God lead his people to hot places? I don't know. Who knows? We'll, we'll see. The, But my point is, rarely for first messages in the church, it focused on, like, New England connections. And I, I found that to be profoundly strategic. What did you think? You know, I didn't actually... I mean, I thought that was important because if the apostles were going to come to New England, I wanted there to be something, you know, kind of for us. I was hoping there would be something for us. But the primary thing I took from that message was to look for the hand of God in, you know, my people's history, in my ancestors' mm-hmm. history, in my family history. Now, there's only so much family history I'm able to find because obviously my father's side... Um, the father, my father's side was primarily slaves. I'm only able to go back about three or four generations on my dad's side to figure out exactly who they were. And I don't know a lot of their histories. And I can't really get my dad to talk about my family history. Every time I go home for Christmas, I ask him when we're going to have a sit down and talk. And he just refuses to tell me anything. And I keep insisting, Dad, my... My kids one day, they're going to want to know where they came from. And I'd really like to know something because you got a you got an interesting story. But, you know, when it comes to my mom's side, it's a very complicated history. My mother is approximately half black, half white. A lot of her ancestry came through, you know, illicit sexual relationships. And, you know, it's it's complicated. There are there are great stories in there, definitely. But um Again, it's a complicated history. And I thought there was a lot of power in talking about simply how our existences and the things that we're able to enjoy, the privileges or the opportunities we have, are a direct result of God placing certain people in certain places so that we could be here where we are today. I did think there was merit in that particular part of his talk where he told us that we need to be looking for God's hand in our ancestry, looking Mm -hmm. for God's hand in our family histories, be acutely aware of the circumstances that place us where we are today, especially where it involves putting us in a position to receive the gospel. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I liked about the, the, the speak, the talks on Sunday is most talk. I hate to sound like I know everything, but most <laughs> talks in the church, I've heard this before. I've I've been in the church four years now. I think mm-hmm. I've heard a, a hundred years worth of talks because they've been all the same, you know, for the past whatever. But but on Sunday, like I heard stuff I never heard before, uh-huh. right? And like, oh, those are interesting stories about John Howland who came over on the uh, Mayflower and fell overboard and caught onto a rope and got back on and then became the ancestor of over 2 million people now, probably. Mm-hmm. That, I'm like, wow, I never heard that before. And just just a lot of these things really struck me in a place where I was prepared to hear them. Whereas on the, and we talked about this, the Saturday evening thing for the young adults it was all stuff that I heard before, and I was wondering why don't they, like, have any breakthroughs? They're, they're coming all the way here. Why don't they say something new? Yeah, give us something new. Totally get that. Especially totally get because that. all these things we've heard, yeah, they can just tell us from Salt Lake, right? We right. Don't, they don't need to come here to tell us, uh, give us a general conference talk. Right, right. It begged the question, why did they come? You know what I'm saying? And I totally understand that. 
I want to talk for a moment about one more thing we heard on Sunday, and that was the thing that actually ended up making headlines across church news, mm-hmm. and that was President Ballard's plea for a new movement to pray. Now, in essence, he wanted us to pray for the country, pray for our leaders. He used very interesting language. He said that we were at a crossroads in this country, and I do want to come back to that real quick. But my general sentiment, my general reaction to the plea to start a movement to pray was simply that I'm kind of done praying. You know what I'm saying? If the wave of mass shootings has shown me anything in this nation, it's that prayers alone don't amount to much. I, I can... I can pray for this nation, but just as I don't exercise faith without works, just as I don't complain without a plan of action, I I don't plan to pray without doing something to make things better in this nation, or at least to protect and minister to those most afflicted by the violence in this country, or, you know, the other, this nation's other shortcomings. I fear that too many people are going to hear this injunction to pray and do nothing more than pray for this nation while maintaining the status quo. The status quo that President Ballard all but condemned, you know what I'm saying? Like, he all but said that this nation is having problems, that there are problems at every level Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. the American institution. He wouldn't name them, but, you know, we can only suppose what he's talking about. Um... He, he, he said we were at a crossroads, like I said. He's acknowledging that there is something more than off about our current position. And he's acknowledged that we have strayed from our constitutional and our religious values. He said, we must stand boldly for righteousness and truth and must defend the cause of honor, decency, and personal freedom espoused by Washington, Madison, Adams, Lincoln, and other leaders who acknowledged and loved God. I agree that this nation needs prayer, and I intend to follow President Ballard's plea to pray for this nation more. But I also intend to work, you know? I don't want to hear this injunction to pray and not acknowledge what prayer means, what it means to pray. When you pray and you receive, and you pray to receive personal revelation or pray for things to come to pass, there is work that needs to be done on our parts. There's this old expression that I really like, and I think it's been said in the church a bunch. But it's pray as if everything depends on God and then work as if everything depends on you. Right. And I strongly believe that. I don't want us to hear the injunction to pray for our nation without us being willing to do something about that. Now, I don't know what that means for everybody. I know what it means for me. It means that you and I got to keep doing this, uh, doing this show, make sure that we lift the voices of other people who aren't heard as much, that we speak up for the dispossessed, the disenfranchised, that we use our positions of privilege to otherwise give people permission and protection. But, you know, for everybody else, that might mean something different, not entirely different, but something different Mm -hmm. nonetheless. So I I just really hope that people take this injunction to pray to heart and know that it doesn't just end at asking God to bless our leaders with knowledge and temperance and other Christ-like attributes. Mm -hmm. It doesn't end with them praying for no calamities to come upon our nation we all play a role we all have a role in instilling proper constitutional and christian values upon this nation and i just really hope that we see that through yeah i want to add that this is a nation with a lot of christians in it but it's not a christian nation Ooh, say it again derek 
and th- we've got to have room for our Muslim siblings, our Jewish siblings, our siblings uh, who are secular or non-religious, because it takes all of us together here to make a functioning democracy. And that's one of the brilliant things that our founders set up was not to have an established religion, not to have uh, to have the freedom of religion that allowed the restored church to be birthed. We right. wouldn't have been able to do that in any other country in the world uh, for, for the most part at that time. Yeah. Other than the United States, which had an, esta- uh, with an established value of freedom of religion mm-hmm. and the independence of the secular powers and, and the church and the churches, right? Mm-hmm. But we do get back to this idea of there are certain values such as liberty and dignity and equality that are baked into our country, which I consider Christian values. They're not exclusively Christian. But right. But, yeah, feeding the poor, it just so happens that that is a biblical commandment, a Christian value, and something that our society should take care of, right? right? And not just giving the poor a handout, but asking the question, well, why are there poor people here? Why is our society structured in such a way that people doing everything they can are poor? Right. That's the real question. Big time. Okay, I wanted to talk a little bit about prayer, too. So, in the biblical context, you have a lot of prayers, and you have a lot of people, for example, when the children of Israel were in Egypt, you can imagine that they prayed for centuries for deliverance. And it didn't happen until it did. Mm-hmm. And then in the exile, people prayed for decades for deliverance. And we have some of these prayers in the Psalms. And that should give us a sense of maturity and realistic expectations mm. around prayer. Prayer is not a vending machine. It's not like <laughs> I did my checklist of I read my scriptures, I prayed, I fasted. I put that in the vending machine, and now God pops out like a genie and gives me the thing that I know. That's not how it works, right? So we have to remember that when we pray for this nation, it's uh, this goes back to the whole school school shooting thing. Mm-hmm. Like, there's there's work to be done, and and prayer isn't a magic bullet that's gonna fix it, or else it would have fixed it already. Right, and I feel like we seriously undermine the purpose and value of prayer when we treat it that way. Right. I didn't mean to cut you off. Was there? Nope, that's it. All right, cool. Do you have any other uh, news items? No other news items. Very good. Then let's go straight into the Come Follow Me for this week. We are in First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Now, Derek, why don't you set the stage for us? Okay, let's just talk a little bit about First and Second Timothy and Titus, these are what are called the pastoral epistles. Okay. Where unlike most of the other letters attributed to Paul, he's writing to one church leader saying, here's what I want you to do. Here's how what I want you to fix. Here's how you should administer the gospel in your area. And so there, there's a particular treasure here. One of the things to note, though, is most of the critical scholars of the New Testament suspect that these three are not actually written by Paul. They're either written by someone after his death in his name or written by a student of Paul trying to carry on his uh, uh, teachings and authority. Or there's some something 
that makes the and and a couple of the reasons why one is the the style is very different the vocabulary is different the perspective can be a little bit different um between what what we call the undisputed letters of Paul versus these three and then um and then also some of the events and chronology may line up differently than what we read in Acts and some of the other epistles so people are wondering well maybe this wasn't dating from the time of Paul the church structure seemed to be a little so there's a number of reasons and I I don't want to publicly say one way or another what people should think on this just to know that 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 is out there and people are, are wrestling with that question now Philemon okay. is definitely undisputed it uh that's a very particular treasure that we have from Paul so in First and Second Timothy, we've got Paul writing to Timothy in Ephesus saying, here's what I want you to do. Here's some problems that are, that are going on. In Second Timothy, he's actually in jail awaiting a trial that he expects not to win, and the outcome would be execution. So he's writing basically his will, in a sense, his spiritual and theological will to Timothy to have him, to give him the courage to carry this on. And we have some very touching words at the end of of Second Timothy. Now, Titus was written to Titus, uh, who was in Crete at the time, and Crete w- was a little bit of a disaster in terms of its social um, situation. A lot of a lot of um, sort of dishonesty and and immorality and other things, disharmony. It was kind of the reputation of the Cretans at the time. Cretans. And so he was writing to that uh <laughs> Yeah, he was I had writing no idea. Right writing to the, the Cretans. Okay. And uh writing to to Titus as as he was stationed in Crete and saying, Here's what you should do. So we get some really t- and I love learning from these three epistles things about how to to walk as a Christian. There's just a lot of cool things here. Okay. So that's my intro and then Philemon was written to Philemon, <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> like, um, that's kind of. And here's the other thing: not just Philemon, but the church that met in his house, because the restoring of a fellow human to an equal place in society is the responsibility of the whole community. Yeah. So um, Onesimus was an enslaved person, and Philemon was the master, and uh, basically, this is restoring. Onesimus as an equal, as a brother in the community, and that's the the entire church was held accountable for that, not just Philemon, but it's written to the entire church. Mm. So that's my introduction to the three of the the four of those epistles. All right, wonderful. I'm going to spend the majority of my time in Philemon. Do you have anything before we get there that you want to say about First and Second Timothy as well as Titus? Yeah, let me just do one real quick thing from each th- of the three. All right, sounds good. So the first thing I want to talk about is in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And here we have one of the problems that's going on here in Ephesus. It looks like some some other teachers had, had come in and started teaching some weird things. And it looks like they have this sort of ascetic tradition that they're trying to instill and and get people to not marry and to abstain from certain foods uh perhaps the the kosher food situation that we had in in the galatia uh, um, 
in the letter to the Galatians. Mm-hmm. But here's what, what Paul says to, to, to Timothy. Um, what verse are we in again? We're chapter 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Already? He says, they, meaning some of these people who have departed from the faith, um, these false teachers, they forbid marriage and abstain from some foods that God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creation of God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy through God's word and prayer. Now here, this is the interesting thing, is that they wanted to forbid marriage. They wanted to enforce some type of celibacy. We don't know the exact details of this, but basically they wanted to presumably think that that sexuality was somehow icky or you should sacrifice it or there's a higher calling or higher purpose and you should abstain from from marriage and gay people hear that a lot yep and the author of first timothy says this is a sign of false teaching now some people might try to use the excuse of well paul's not talking about about same gender marriage here but in a sense he is because marriage is marriage and when you abstain from, when you're asking someone to abstain from marriage, you're actually asking them to, ab- let's look at, so so Paul doesn't ground this in, in like prohibitions around same gender marriage. He, he grounds what he says here in the createdness of things. That going back to Genesis, that everything is created very good. And queer and trans people are created good. Okay. And I think that same logic would apply equally. It's not a stretch at all to to talk about those who abstain who are commanding people to abstain from marriage are engaged in a false teaching. Mm. Yeah, it it totally directly applies. I think. Okay. What do you think? Makes sense to me. Like right, right. I was wondering when you were going to get there actually. Like as soon as you read these verses, I was like I'm sure Derek is going to find something affirming in here, and I was just waiting for it. So yeah, yeah. I'm glad you. I'm glad you pointed it out. And so he grounds it in the goodness of all creation, which we're queer people are equally in the image of God, right? Yeah. And our sexuality is good; it's created just as good as everyone else is. You started a sentence earlier that I want to see if you wanted to finish. You said um, the reason that people would want you to say no to marriage is oh grounded in this really a faulty understanding of of the goodness of God's creation and a faulty understanding of of marriage okay which goes back to this that's what i wanted to say is he grounded it not in a covenant path uh, as we like to say now but he grounded it in the, in creation okay because if you had a covenant path it's the same thing with the foods he he parallels the food with the marriage which is interesting because if you actually look at the covenant of God's people in the Torah, it literally does provide a very narrow covenant path around food. Yeah. And Paul's look, no, we're not bound by that because God created all of these foods. They're by nature good. And if you receive them with thanksgiving, then they're okay. So the logic what he does here is he subverts this very narrow understanding of one you know one piece of this covenant path is now binding in a way that that is is restricting people 
Yeah. Right. Restricting the Gentiles. Right. And I think that the same an argument can be said about marriage, which is mm-hmm. sort of coordinated with this. Mm-hmm. Some people are going to have this really, really narrow understanding of marriage, this really narrow understanding of the covenant path. But he's grounding his words here, not in the particular language of the covenant. Right. But he's grounding it or a particular way that the path should look. Right. Um, just like keeping kosher is, is grounded in a very narrow and particular way of, of the covenant, what the covenant path should look like. That's what people think about um, marriage and, and discriminatory attitudes around marriage is only for straight people. I'm like, uh-huh. yeah, <laughs> that's not rooted in the goodness of all creation. That's not mm-hmm. rooted in the fact that my people are equally created in the image of God. Yep. Right. So grounding it in those things is part of Paul's strategy that I think I'm taking in a very authentic way. Yeah. Even though he may not have had same-gender marriage in his mind when he talked about people (laughs) forcing others to abstain from marriage, the actual underlying logic and his argumentation applies just as well because the reason they're abstaining, wanting people to abstain from marriage is... Because it's a faulty understanding of human nature and a faulty understanding of marriage Mm. and the goodness of marriage and the goodness of God who wants us to have these things. And to artificially deprive us of marriage is contrary to what Paul's talking about here. Mm. I really like how you use that word uh, subverts. I'm going to use that word a few times when we get to Philemon because Paul is very good at this. And I think I've seen it more in these uh, in these books than perhaps anywhere else except mm-hmm. maybe Galatians, where Paul doesn't necessarily directly address a social problem, but he always addresses Christianity and says, in essence, in every single one of these situations, that Christians don't do this. Christians don't act yeah. like this. If you are a true believer in Christ, then you're not going to condemn people for you know, eating this food or loving in this way, yada, yada. Like, there is a... I want to say it's almost an art that Paul engages in where he dismantles convention and institutional problems with nothing more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's really powerful and really like when you look for it, really fun to observe. So I'm just glad that you acknowledge that. And I really like that you use that word subvert because I'm going to be using it a bunch too. And here's the other thing about there's, there's a, there are major, major weaknesses with the anti-gay position within the church. Yeah. A lot of them don't base it around the prohibitions in in the Bible around same-gender activity. What they root it in is this understanding of sealing. They say, well, men and, only men and, and women can be sealed together, so that's the, only, uh, that's the only marriage that makes sense. That is acceptable. Yeah. But here's – but I'm like – well, how do you know exactly who can be sealed, right? And how do you know what what our further light and understanding will be? And here's the other thing. There's people who get married in this life who aren't sealed in this life. We allow non-members to get married to each other, right? And yeah. Or to members and without sealing. And we yeah. say, look, that'll get fixed later, right? So my theory is that the marriage out – if you look at what marriage outside uh, – the power of the holy priesthood is in DNC 132. It basically says it's it's void, mm-hmm. right? So if they think that there's something wrong with same gender marriage because it can't be, it's it's not seal sealed, it's a, not a sealing. Then 
what they're basically saying is that same gender marriage under our church view would be the same as a straight marriage that's not a ceiling. Right. It's those should be treated exactly the same. Mm. Given that they're both legal in this country, given that they're neither one of them is done by the authority of the holy priesthood, they should both be treated the same way. Mm. Right. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, is the children argument. People say, well, the reason why gay marriage isn't allowed is because you can't have children. Well, guess what? You can't have children with celibacy either. So why are you? <laughs> look, if, if you're saying it's wrong because it violates this, you know, be fruitful and multiply. It, celibacy results in literally the same number of children. Right. And how does that treat how we deal with people who are infertile? Yeah, there's, there's or a intersex number of problems indiv- with that. individuals or the fact that gay people actually can have kids now. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yep. There's there's a number of flaws with with uh, that reasoning. And yeah. part of the fla- reason the flaws that are there is because most of these people haven't thought about that issue more than 20 minutes in their life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They think it's, you know, somehow just already sit- settled. Right. They just assume it's some settled thing and they haven't even critically thought about this f- and realized the gaping holes in the whole thing. It all tumbles apart like the emperor's new clothes when you just point it and say, oh you did it again Derek what you brought up something else I'm gonna bring up oh the emperor's new clothes but we'll get to that okay we'll get to that so yeah let, let me just say that that going back to this the people who are asking people to be to abstain from marriage it makes no sense to ask gay people to understand to abstain from the marriage that is true to who who we are hmm and because celibacy doesn't actually succeed if people say well you need to be sealed in order to get to the to the celestial kingdom well being celibate really doesn't give you any head start over right. being gay married celibacy yeah, that's a and solution gay marriage, that they propose right and so my theory is well even if you don't believe that that gay marriage is or could be forever why not have a gay marriage in this life you're going to be the you're going to be no worse off than if you live to sell, but life is what, what they're asking, right? Mm-hmm. So they have no good answers because they no longer can really say, oh, you should, if you're gay, you should marry a woman. If you're a lesbian, you should marry a man. They don't really say that anymore. They also realize that the celibacy option doesn't doesn't make sense either because then you're not sealed to anyone. They're like, we don't know. Mm-hmm. And so um, the only source of knowledge here is to just go back and dig into like what Paul does go back to the goodness of creation and the image of God that resides in all of us and realize, hey, look, there's something here that we're just beginning to uncover. Right. So that's all I have for 1 Timothy. Okay. Now I'm going to talk about Titus 3, verses 4 and 7 real quick. I just love this baptismal in- imagery. Titus 3, verses 4. Uh, oh, by the way, I'm reading from Tom Wayman's translation. You said Titus 3? Uh, Titus 3, verses 4 through um seven got it but when the goodness and loving kindness of our god and savior appeared he saved us not as a result of works we did in righteousness but according to his mercy by means of the washing of rebirth and renewal of the holy spirit he poured the spirit out upon us richly through jesus christ our savior so that we might be made righteous in his grace and become heirs according to a hope of eternal life. I think that's really great that it centers it on grace, centers baptism, centers the 
the supreme nature of Christ in all of this. Um, there's a lot of controversy around faith versus works in Paul. Yeah. And Protestants have really read that one particular way. But there's something we as Latter-day Saints can learn from this too. Um, we don't actually teach that we earn heaven, right? Right. That doesn't bring peace. It doesn't bring security. It doesn't bring wholeness. It just brings a disaster to think that you earn your way to heaven, which is a really distortion of what, what our scriptures teach. But I, I just love how baptism itself is a symbol of like how God loves us and washes us and renews us. And um, it's because of Christ. Mm. And I'm struggling to figure out what to say about this because Paul already said it. It's just so beautifully. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that rem- that that kind of reminds me of my baptism as well. And so that's that's kind of where I want to go. And uh, what we have to remember is that Paul is writing to Titus in the midst of of this whole Crete problem. Let me, let me just go back one uh, to the first chapter that says uh, Titus one verse twelve. One of them, one from am- among them, one of their own prophets, said, "Cretans always lie." Evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be healthy in the faith. And this is a quotation by Epimenides, who was a Cretan. And uh, which leads to a, to a little bit of a paradox, because if Epimenides is a Cretan, he's a liar, so you might not be able to trust what he said. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. A little bit of a paradox. But... Um, but that's the context he's writing in and comparing this sort of like highly, highly charged, almost inflammatory and defaming language about the Cretans with the beauty and cleanliness that we have through baptism in Christ. I mean, that's just a very powerful image to me. That's all I have on Titus. And I want to just jump to Second Timothy verse four. OK, um, I'm doing this one last out of the three because this is sort of his farewell to Timothy. Sorry, Second Timothy chapter four. Second Timothy chapter four. OK, verses six through eight. Basically, mm. let me sit, sit, sit the scene. He, Paul's probably in a dungeon somewhere in Rome. His trial's not going well. He foresees that he's about to die. A lot of his friends have abandoned him. And uh, he says in, in uh, 4.11, only Luke is with me. Everyone else abandoned him or they, they left to go on missionary type stuff. But he's he's really thinking about his life. Um, it's, it, it's, it's ending, right? And this is one of the most personal letters you have in all of Paul, if it is really by Paul, mm. which is p- kind of why I think it is by Paul, because who else would write this and have it have the depth of character and vividness of someone about to die and and yeah so that's kind of my thoughts on this okay but he says in verse uh, six of chapter four for i am already being poured out as an offering and the time for my departure is at hand i have competed well i have finished the race i have kept the faith finally a crown of righteousness is reserved for me which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me in that day, and not only to me, but to all who love his appearing. Hmm. And what I love this about this is how Christ 
changes your entire view of the world. Like the way you approach suffering is different as a Christian. Definitely. Especially given the suffering of Christ on the cross. Mm -hmm. The way you approach everything changes as a Christian. And I think even even uh, death has has a larger meaning mm. for those of us who are in Christ. And I think the fact that he was able to go to his death with courage and conviction, knowing that uh, uh, some of his problems were embarrassing to the cur early Christian movement, right? People looked at him and didn't trust him, or uh, because of his run-ins with the law because of all the poverty he was in because of all the uh the, the the trouble that he had people looked down on his message and looked down like what are these christians about you know why we how can you trust someone like paul who's in jail half the time and he's shipwrecked half the time and who gets stoned not in the fun way but in the not fun way right um <laughs> <laughs> you're on it man <laughs> uh i didn't even realize that that I it's the way that sounded until I said it, but but yeah, and that's the other reason for half of the uh, challenging aspects to to what we have in the pastorals is he's really trying to be strategic. He's realizing, oh look, you need to have your family life a certain way, um, relationships between men and women, relationships between masters and enslaved people. Right? Paul is trying to work within the system in part knowing that there's equality in Christ, what does this look like to the public? And he's having to navigate mm. that tension. And I'm not in a position to say whether he did it right or wrong and whether what he would uh, say to the to people in the 19th century who could achieve abolition, Yeah. right? So that's, that's a thing. But we have to understand what Paul was doing. I'm not saying you have to agree with him, but we have to understand he was trying to be st strategic in subverting everything for the sake of Christ and the sake of the message and realizing, look, if I incite um, slave rebellions, right, that's not going to make Christianity uh, make sense to people. If I completely overthrow the order of the household, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause a problem for us in Rome, and, it's, and bringing to people to Christ is, uh, is quite important. Thank you for sharing that, Derek, and I want that to... Uh I want that to lead into what I was going to say about Philemon here. Now, you've already covered more or less what the epistle of Philemon is about. It was interesting to me because it's been over a decade since I've actually read the book of, you know, this epistle to Philemon. And I read it more as a text of forgiveness and reconciliation, not really as an anti-slavery text. But I thought it would be cool to read it that way this time around. And a big part and a big reason why I read that text that way is actually because of what may be my favorite speech by Frederick Douglass, What to the Slave mm -hmm. is the Fourth of July. I, I was thinking about a particular paragraph that he recited in there. He gave, and interestingly, he gave the speech in 1852. This is just a few, like eight years before the Civil War, and the same year as the priesthood and temple restriction on the people of African descent in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So Douglas takes some time in his speech to demonstrate that the institution and perpetuation of slavery could not actually be blamed on the Bible and be blamed on Christianity, even though that's exactly mm -hmm. what America was doing at the time. 
he would go on to call slavery in the name of Christ a, quote, horrible blasphemy, the American brand of Christianity, quote, a lie, and republicanism, quote, a sham. He would then conclude, quote, standing with God and the crushed and bleeding slave on this occasion, I will, in the name of humanity, which is outraged, in the name of liberty, which is fettered, in the name of the Constitution and the Bible, which are disregarded and trampled upon, dare to call in question and to denounce with all the emphasis I can command everything that serves to perpetuate slavery, the great sin and shame of America, close quote. I feel like Douglas knew what most Christians did not at that time, and I want to take some time to point out how the epistle to Philemon informs Douglas's stance and also how it gives us I want I want to point out how it undermines slavery how it informs Christians how they ought to respond to slavery and in effect how it undermines slavery and how Paul did that uh, with this text so let's go from the top of Philemon because there's a, there's a lot in here. I think I counted at least like seven things that Paul does. Very subtle, very subversive, that word you used, but very artful in this. So Paul's instructions to Philemon regarding Onesimus in the book of Philemon, we learned that Onesimus was a slave. You talked about this, Derek. He escaped, found Paul, received Jesus, and was instructed to return to Philemon. However, Paul writes to Philemon, giving instruction on how to receive Onesimus, and in the process, undermines slavery, as I said. So the first instance we can probably look at is in verse 4 through 5. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. Close quote. All saints. This word, saints, is given to the members of the church. Onesimus is one of them now, and now Philemon has to respect him as one rather than a simple means of production. Paul is drawing attention to the fact that he is a saint now, he is more than a means of commerce. Moving on, we can look to verse 8 and 9, when Paul lets Philemon know that he could command him to do what he wants, but because he loves Philemon, he'll rather ask nicely. It could be said that Paul is modeling the proper relationship between those who love each other. Onesimus is now a saint like Philemon, and Paul is therefore entitled to the love of Philemon, as Philemon is entitled to the love of Paul. Now, this next one in verse 10 is undoubtable to me. Paul calls Onesimus his son, further heightening the sense that Onesimus is of the family of God. Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon as his own son and wants Philemon to know that this is my son. Treat him as such. This won't be the last time Paul raises the stakes either. We see this again in verse 12. Quote, whom, meaning Onesimus, I have sent again. Thou therefore receive him, that is, mine own bowels, close quote. Now, to call someone your bowels implies a deep, a really deep emotional connection with that person. He's leveraging his relationship with Onesimus to make sure that he receives the proper treatment when he returns to Philemon. Then we get to verse 13 and 14. Paul returns to this theme of no coercion that he alluded to in 8 and 9. Uh, let me get to it, 13 and 14. So he again, okay, I'm just going to read it. But without thy mind would do nothing, that thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly, quote, close quote, he says in verse 14. 
So he's letting Philemon know he doesn't want to coerce him into receiving Paul the way he wants him to be received. He didn't want to keep him. He, in essence, says, I could have kept Onesimus here, but I wanted you to give the, I wanted to give you the opportunity to do the right thing by sending him back to you. So Paul is just reinforcing that note that he doesn't want to do this. He, he doesn't want to do this without Philemon's consent. He's giving him a shot to do the right thing. So then Paul kind of drops the bombshell in verse 15 through 16. Quote, for perhaps he therefore departed for a season that thou shouldest receive him forever, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, specially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Close quote. So Paul just made it clear that Onesimus and Philemon share the most important identity each of them could have, which is the identity of being one in the Lord. We, we, we've... I forget where we went over this, Ephesians or Galatians, but just basically this idea that all are alike unto God, this idea that when we all take upon ourselves the identity as a follower of Jesus Christ, we all become the same. So Paul is just highlighting this part. They are equals now, and therefore not necessary that one should be a servant to the other. Get to verse 17. Paul instructs Philemon to receive Onesimus, not just as Paul's son, but as Paul himself. Basically, treat Onesimus the way you would treat me. That's what Paul is saying. So Paul just raises the stakes one more time. And then verse 18, what I think is the cherry on top, Paul assumes whatever debts Onesimus owes. Let's just remember, you said this already, Derek. Paul is in jail. Like, what debts is Paul going to assume? And what is Philemon going, how is Philemon going to feel trying to hold Paul accountable for his debts? Like, Philemon probably feels some kind of way at this point when he reads this part of the letter. Like, oh, hold you to these debts even though you're in jail he, he's not gonna do that like how are you gonna how are you gonna collect from paul when he's in jail and further in jail for doing the work of god like that's just that's not going to happen i don't know if that was petty on paul's part but it certainly was effective you know it's just an effective tool and once again letting him know that this is what it is to be a christian here's the conclusion and what i believe is the point of philemon and the christian stance on slavery God doesn't want us to treat the enslaved like slaves because to treat a slave as an equal and a brother, as we are told in verse 16, is to strip the institution of all its objectionable traits. And I suspect this is how, in Paul, this is how Paul intended to fight, to fight slavery by Christian subversion. There's that word again. This is where I was going to use that word. It brings me to one more lesson that we can yet again learn from Paul. And you brought this up again, Derek, but this, just this idea of being strategic. It's been said before, both directly and indirectly, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, properly understood and applied, can solve our most pressing social ills in a strategic way. Police brutality, institutional racism, homophobia, and other isms and phobias. We can solve all of it with the strategic application of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see Paul doing that yet again here in this epistle of Philemon, slowly but surely dismantling the institution of slavery by letting people know what it means to be a Christian. Because who wouldn't want to be a slave to somebody who's going to treat them as a brother? You know what I'm saying? You can't be a Christian and treat an enslaved person as a slave. It's just impossible to do. So this is Paul subverting the institution of slavery with Christianity, and it's freaking brilliant. Yes, it is brilliant. It, it is so brilliant. Thank you so much for the, for those amazing thoughts. Thank I, you, man. I'm glad how you brought out all of the details that you did. Um, 
I want to add that it's in Galatians 3.28 that we have the equality of slave and, and free. Ah, uh, yes. Um, that we're all one in Christ. We're all baptized in Christ, which that's Paul's foundation for all this. Yep. When he figures out how does the gospel play out in a community where slaves and masters are now both Christian, what ha- how does that look? Because, yes, they're equal. And then what does that look like? How do they treat each other? Mm-hmm. And I think that that gets to to play out here, especially in Philemon. One of the things that we notice is that Paul, in his letter to Philemon, redefined the family. Mm-hmm. You know, some people say, <laughs> oh, you can't redefine the family. Well, Paul did it. <laughs> Paul did it all over the place yeah. by calling Philemon his son, mm-hmm. most likely meaning a convert, right? He's the yeah. one who brought him in. And give him th- this new birth of life in Christ. Same thing with uh, Philemon. Philemon probably owes his life and his salvation to Paul. Mm-hmm. And then so Onesimus and Philemon were both, both. called sons. Okay. Yes. Both of them were, um, and it, where does it say, uh, Paul says in, in verse 19, I could also add that you owe me your very self, right? <laughs> yeah. Philemon owes everything to Paul, right? And so just redefine. <sighs> Being in Christ just redefines family. And mm-hmm. and when you look at the way the Roman family was structured, you had, you know, the husband, the wife, the children, the servants or slaves. You had this big extended family situation here with all that had very well-defined roles, and the gospel blows that all apart. And then you kind of have to live in the world a little bit still if you look at some of uh, what we have in First and Second Timothy. Mm-hmm. Um or First Timothy and Titus about slavery, so it's 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 very strategic there. Yes, you, you, but but here's what what the brilliant is is he redefines family, and it's done in such a very radical way because it's not that Paul just freed Onesimus because a freed slave was actually not an equal. You're still not an equal if you're a freed slave. Mm. Y- he actually has more dignity than just as it because Roman law allowed you to free slaves, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you could, you could. Uh, it's called manumission. You could, you know, set your slaves free, but they still aren't an, a social equal. You're, you're n- you would never get a become a social equal. But here's what happened: is you not only become a social equal, you become family. You become a brother, right? And here's we, here's we are redefining. Redefining Onesimus's uh, role from no longer being a slave, but as a beloved brother, brother, dear to Philemon, because Onesimus is dear to Paul, which gets back to the really complicated nature of this. So Paul's argument really is about treat Onesimus like you would treat me. Yeah, which is a very Christ-like move here. It's very radical because it's about what they share in Christ. Right. It's about what they have, what they share, their their identity in Christ, their cooperation in Christ, their love in Christ. And I just find um, this argument to be so brilliant. And, and we don't know. We have no records from the other end of this conversation. But I all but think that Philemon had to agree. Mm-hmm. It's written in such a... Away, he even Paul anticipates in verse twenty-one, having confidence in your obedience. I write to you, knowing that you will do more than I. We can pretty much assume that Philemon did it. Yeah, he did the right thing. Yeah, right. And this is the way an apostle of Christ should do. Mm-hmm. There's no unrighteous dominion here at all. Right. 
he even says, well, I could have commanded you, yep. but I'm not going to do it this way. I'm going to do it so that I can teach you to be responsible for this choice. Mm-hmm. And so you can choose the right choice knowing it's the right choice out of the right motivation. Mm. I think that is how apostles should lead the church today mm. by their own example, putting themselves on the line, just as Paul did, um, saying if there's anything which leads people to believe that Onesimus must have either stolen something or broken something or something in his uh, running away and now owed uh, Philemon something, but then Paul's like, nope, I'll pay it. Whatever it is, charge it to me because I'm going to leave. Let's talk about student loans right now. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Like, (laughs) but it's the idea of, look, it would be, an injustice for this debt for him to go back with a debt mm-hmm. because then you'd have a still a power de- imbalance, right? Having this load on him that he may not be able to repay. We're going to take that off. We're, we're going to radically subvert this whole system. He's going to be a brother and he's going to be debt free. Like, wow. Mm-hmm. I think that's, uh, that's so, so brilliant. Now I do have to say that some, some, uh, some of our, Christian preachers in the South used Philemon uh, the wrong way in the debates over slavery. They said, well, look, Paul sent back a fugitive slave to his master. Mm -hmm. But that's reading it like the homophobes read the Bible, just taking the whole surface outline out of context and not even reading the argument. Because he's not sending him back in chains, which he he had the right to do under Roman law. Mm -hmm. He did the opposite. Not only freeing him, but making him a brother, which you, which doesn't doesn't make sense under the the Roman understanding of law. You can't you can't just say, "Oh, you're a brother now," right? Yeah. You could free a slave, but that doesn't make them into the status of brother. That doesn't make him an heir, mm-hmm. right? And here's they're they're co heirs with everything. Is there's this mutuality and reciprocality and equality that bursts forth in Christ that the world doesn't understand. And some of that world's misunderstanding has creeped into what our church has, was, has taught about women or uh, about LGBT people mm. and people of color. And so I'm glad that we have a spark of this divine holiness that's radically infusing this world with a complexity that completely subverts the way the world categorizes people. And I uh, hope that that part of the ongoing restoration of the church is that that fire gets restored again and again and again. Mm. Great thoughts, Derek. With that, let's move on to the prayer roll and wrap things up. I'm going to be as brief as I can with Matt Gates. For those of you who don't know, this is the Florida congressman and Florida man who, in a very short period of time, did two things worthy of the prayer roll this week. He managed to make the GOP, white men, and millennials just look awful. For those who didn't hear a couple of days ago, Matt Gates, who Twitter has said has the perfect example of, do you have any idea who my father is face, led a Mega Lives Matter protest into a secure facility to disrupt impeachment proceedings. So he appeared on MSNBC just this morning and introduced, and he was introduced by a, by a soundbite of Congresswoman Jackie Speier basically describing the stunt as, quote, a high school prank by a bunch of 50-year-old white men, close quote. Um, First of all, MSNBC, that was kind of petty, but, you know, I'm here for it. Secondly, Matt Gates would rightfully take exception to that. You know, 
he did take exception to that, but he didn't take exception to it for what I feel were the right reasons. For example, 50-year-old white men, average age of men in Congress is like 57. So, you know, you got to raise that by at least seven years. Say they're (laughs) 60-year-old men or something, you know. Jackie could have taken some time to figure that out. Secondly, it wasn't a bunch of white men. It was a bunch of white men and three women. Of the 41 people that were there, there were three whole women. So, you know, just acknowledge that the GOP is trying to be somewhat diverse. You know what I'm saying? It's not fair of Jackie to not mention that. You know what I'm saying? And, um, you know, but, but, but Matt Gates doesn't take issue with that. He takes issue with the only accurate part of her statement, which was Matt Gates and all of his constituents all of his white Tifa comrades being called white men. That is what he took exception to. Let me just read what he said here. (laughs) So first words out of his mouth after he heard that descriptor. Did she say that we were a bunch of white men? Close quote. What does the fact that we are white men have to do with our desire to represent the millions of constituents we serve? And then he went on to say, quote, I was deeply offended by that. When Jackie Spear walks in a room, I don't sit there and say a white woman came in. This is the type of identity politics from the left that seems to permeate any substantive or procedural arguments they make. And it's sickening to me that that's how we should be thought of. It's just really kind of sickening. Close quote. Um, so so th- there's a lot to unpack there, but there's just one part of that that really bears unpacking right now. And that is his central complaint about being called a white guy. So I'm going to just pull back on the Caucasian curtain for a minute to explain why white men would take any exception to being called exactly what they are, because I certainly wouldn't object. If I walked in with a gaggle of like 30 other black men, I wouldn't complain about being called a black man or all of us being called black men, because that is what I am. That is what we are. This, the central question here is why was he offended by it? That's what I like really want to get into real quick. And he's offended by it because he knows. He knows what white men do. He is pricked by that. He knows that Jackie knows what white men do. He knows that his party is the party of white men. He knows that his, you know, white comrades are protected and empowered because of their skin. He knows that the reason he was able to bum rush a security facility and still not be in jail, that the reason that they're able to break the law, obstruct justice, and subvert democracy and not be in jail is basically because of his skin. I really like what Michael Harriet had to say about this. He brilliantly summed this up, that the only reason they are not held accountable is because, quote, that American politics is nothing but an invisible white guilt deflector shield protecting the social, political, and economic advantages afforded to white men, close quote. So, Matt Gates and other white men, they're, they're not upset about being called white men per se. They're upset at the people calling them white men can see what that means that their only protection and power is white supremacy, that the emperor is wearing no clothes Mm. except for their white skin. So prayers up for Matt Gates and his hurt feelings over his newfound nakedness. Yeah. Let me just say two things about that. Yeah. And listeners, I'm just going to get real with you for a second. I don't, I don't normally expose my faults to the, uh, to the world like this. Oh goodness. But when you were describing this and, Talking about those white men, I, I was in my head like almost like laughing at them, like "Oh dear, what are they up to?" Those those white men, like, and then I I literally forgot that I was a white man, for, <laughs> like for for a little bit. I'm like I thought it is some other category, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
but that's how invisible the category of white men is because we're so central that we're seen as default and it's it's un is seen as unmarked right it's only when you have a woman or a person of color that that is uh, something to be noticed right and uh, it's because of white supremacy and male supremacy in our culture that we see ourselves as 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 a uh, nothing to to notice right that the, our whiteness or maleness isn't something to be noticed yeah and it's so unnoticeable that i didn't even notice it myself for half a second <laughs> like I'm like, ha ha! Look at all those those dumb white men over there that they're like, what? And then I'm one of I'm one of them. I am I'm a white I'm a white male, right? And I think pointing that out is important. And he's offended that they noticed it. Yeah. But you have to notice it because it affects the positionality from which you speak, from which you govern. And that's what he denied when he first brought that and up. And if you think that if you make it invisible and say we don't see color or like uh, the fact that I'm a white man has nothing to do with the way that I move through the yes. world. Yes. It has everything to do with it and the fact that you don't see it is the problem mm -hmm. that we're trying to raise by pointing it out mm -hmm. that you're a white man. Mm -hmm. And so there that's kind of uh so yeah, let's pray for pray for this white man and He's only 37, man. Oh. He's only he's our age, bro. Like You know what we should do is we should send him uh we should send him some of Paul's epistles. We should send right? him probably, some of Paul's epistles. I, I shouldn't assume, but most most Republicans are claiming to be Christian anyway, so mm -hmm. so uh he should be he should be uh reading reading some Paul. He should be reading some Paul. Should be reading some Paul. Uh with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Derek Tell them, tell the people where they can find us. Yeah, we have a new website. You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Check us out, and this is a good way to share us with uh, uh, with uh, with your friends. Is you just send them this link, and you'll you'll get a description. You'll get uh, some bios of the hosts. You'll get some reviews to look at. You'll get some links. Um, and I, that's a good way of sharing this because then people can look at this and realize, oh, there's something here for me. Now I know why you listen to it. I'm going to listen to it too. Mm. And uh, oh, and and the other thing is our survey. We yes. we want to like know. We want to be people. responsive. So share us your thoughts. And we help want us to get be, to know you better. Um, responsible and, that will, and accountable. We'll really to our tailor what we do and make sure that we get the most fresh, relevant, and um, appropriate content that meets the needs of our listeners. Because we love you. We want. We're here for you. You're not here for, uh, yeah. for us. We're yeah. here for you to serve your needs. Make sure that you become known um, and help us help you. And where can they find that survey, Derek? They can find it pinned at our Twitter and our Facebook page. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you very much. We will see you next week. Bye.